Welcome to the Splinters Podcast from the team on the bench. Community Radio's leading no-holds-barred Friday night sports show. Available online and replayed on Triple H 100.1 FM. Now, here's your host, the Lord Mayor, Keith Topolsky. Yes, it is is a very warm good evening or good morning or good afternoon, depending on when you're listening to us, where you're listening to us right around the world on the Triple H Global Network. Welcome to Splinters, the Bench Podcast on Triple H 100.1 FM or triplehfm.com.au if you are web streaming us or you can download us podcasts.com tune in spotify itunes wherever you get your podcasts wherever you get your good podcasts and a couple of bad ones as well i'm the lord mayor keith topolsky great to have your company and we're deviating well there was a little thing a couple of weekends ago it was it was commonly referred to as democracy sausage day by most people but apparently there was an election on as well so we thought we might just touch on splinters this week the connection between sport and politics and I know that when we get political people don't like to tune in but at the end of the day sport is becoming more political and we have to talk about it and who do we get to talk politics on the bench or on splinters well there's only two of us who are card carrying members of political parties we're members of the same party and we've worked together for a long time and he was on last week's bench so we thought we'd get him in here while he was out from under the thumb of Mrs. Caruso, and it is the godfather of the bench, the Raging Bull. Welcome back to Splinters, Anthony Caruso. Thank you very much, Keith, and a good evening, good morning, good afternoon to wherever you are right around the world, and uh, what a uh, what a day it was to celebrate uh, freedom and democracy in probably one of the best nations in the world. Yeah, it was quite a day for democracy and democracy sausages, and we can talk about the election result, but we're not going to. If you want to hear politics discussed, then from the left perspective, tune in to Street Beat on Fridays at 4pm, Neil the Noob and Justine. Or from the right perspective, tune in to the Midweek Mop Wash-Up, now the Wednesday Drive Show on Wednesdays at 4 with Stephen and myself. But well, let's, in terms... Let, before we do that, actually, we do have to ask you, where is your ideal democracy sausage location? Well, I talked a little bit about this in, on the uh, Midweek Wash-Up and I spoke a little bit about this before we got to the Midweek Wash-Up outside broadcast the weekend or the Wednesday before the election, I should say. And the Ideal Democracy Sausage stall, I don't think is really about the sausage. I think it's about the festival of the day. And make it a fair and make it a family occasion, just like sport is, I'd say. Fair enough, fair enough. I have to say, I had um, one particular moment a couple of uh, couple of elections ago. It was the 2015 state election. And um, going back to my old stomping grounds at Brookvale Public School and to turn up to find something very different. It was a Tongan roast beast happening. Not even a, just a standard democracy sausage. They had a roast happening there and then. See, th- this is where sports clubs have to set the gold bar to keep up with the schools on election day. So Absolutely. let's see it. I-, I know down at the MWFA match of the round, they have wood-fired pizzas, and you did walk me past there uh, a few weekends ago when I did fill in for you on one of those MWFA nights. And they do there pizza, are sports good clubs, pizza, don't they? Yeah, they, they, they lift the bar, these sports clubs, and I'm very impressed with what they're doing at the moment. So let's see that standard held up. But we are talking politics as it relates to sport and probably one of the lesser sports that doesn't really involve the political side of things too much is cricket. Not- 
now, cricket, as far as I'm concerned, I know that you love it. I know that Measy loves it and Jake loves it and Shane loves it and I can barely keep my eyes open. But something that cricket has managed to do fairly well, even though they've got their own problems with administering the game, is that they keep politics well away from it, even though you've still got the members and you've got the college shirts as a requirement to get into the members and you've still got all that sort of tradition. But they generally do a pretty good job in keeping politics out of the sporting realm, although you can go way back to the old apartheid days in South Africa when cricket was front and centre in the political debate. Well, it goes further than that, and a lot of people don't actually know this, but back in the 30s and the 40s, around the time of the Bradman era, uh, cricket was highly political. And we're talking along the lines of something that is could was quite ugly back in the day and it was across sectarian lines. So a lot of people don't know this, but the Australian team back back then was split along religious lines between the Catholics and the Protestants and um, it led to many arguments in particular the most notable ones of course being uh, Bradman against former cricketer turned journalist Jack Fingleton things got very heated between those two and cricket's not the only sport that has had that sectarian rivalry and we'll get to another sport that really had a humdinger in 1948 which is another appropriate cricket year but there was another situation where that unfolded but In terms of that sectarian divide and then any future racial problems, I think the biggest situation that cricket has really looked at politically in the past few years might have been when I think it was Usman Khawaja, as part of his religious beliefs, asked to be exempt from wearing the VB logo, I think it was. He wasn't the only one because Farwood Ahmed also uh, requested the same change to his his clothing. And I don't think it was that much of it. It wasn't that much of an issue of the time. Um, Khawaja, of course, a, a practicing Muslim but even then I think Cricket Australia were very were more than happy to accommodate it because Khwaja while he's he's proud of his faith he doesn't hoist it up in front of everyone to see it's just there everyone are very respectful of it he's very respectful and when you meet him you wouldn't need the way he interacts with people you wouldn't even think it and no, that's that, the key yeah that's very true and you, you can tell the course of the way that some Islamic dress uh, stands out from typical Western dress, you can sometimes pick the, I'd say, more orthodox. I don't like to use the word fundamentalist because that carries different connotations, but the more orthodox Muslims when they dress. But that's not the case with Usman Khawaja, although Farwad Ahmed maybe a little bit more in terms of the facial hair, but you're quite right. Neither of them really make a big deal about their faith, and that, that's probably something that helped their cause when that VB logo situation came along. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Khawaja doesn't make a big deal about it with his other teammates. He says, well, that's their decision. I respect their decision for it. This is the only thing. And, you know, it's the only thing he's ever asked. And in terms of something like that, I'm, Cricket Australia were very welcoming to sort of accommodate it. You'll notice it as well with some of the other Islamic the Islamic nations that play cricket. Uh, Pakistan comes to mind. You'll notice that they've never had a um, alcoholic sponsor, but they've been sponsored for many years by Pepsi. Yes. So um, that's that's been sort of a requirement. But again, no one, no one batters an eyelid because at the end of the day, no one makes a big deal about it. At the end of the day, they're there to play cricket. And that's something that cricketers and cricket as a sport have actually been very well versed in and they're very, I wouldn't say tolerant because 
to say that they're tolerant means others are intolerant, but they know how to how, how to handle themselves and they know where to draw the line and they know exactly what lines they can cross and what lines they can't and who can push what boundaries. And they do that very well and they can control themselves quite well. But another sporting code that's close to your heart, probably the sporting code that's equally close to your heart, has gone through a few political issues over the years. And one most recently, particularly in Australia, is the round ball game, the world game. I like to call it dive ball, you like to call it football, others like to call it soccer. And they had a real situation not that long ago because a Bahrainian man, Hakeem Al-Arabi, I think is how you pronounce it, he came to Australia, settled in Australia as a refugee, headed off to Thailand, and then all of a sudden, Thai authorities detained him because the Bahrain government wanted him sent back to Bahrain, and Craig Foster was very vocal about this. And the FFA, I wouldn't say they completely kept their powder dry for political reasons, but I wouldn't say they were overly active in trying to get him back. No, they weren't. Um, and in fact, they what they did do was they left it to Craig Foster to be the, the voice and the face of it, whilst the FFA actually were, and I can, I can reveal this, is that they were involved um, behind the scenes a lot more. So you had Craig Foster being the face of the boy, the the face of the entire campaign. Football, the FFA working with the federal government to try and come to a resolution around the situation with Mr. Al Arabi. Now, where they did very well was that rather than just try and lobby and say this is a failure of policy or whatnot, they actually got together with government and worked out the solution to to the problem and. I think rightly so. The FFA, Craig Foster and the federal government at the time ended up looking like heroes because what they did was they didn't try, no one tried to make a big song and dance about any sort of policy. They realised that what had happened was that a gentleman had gone overseas, uh, he was being detained against his will uh, over a an allegation that occurred in Bahrain and the their belief was, well, he is a refugee of Australia. We should treat him as he as he should be. He's a ref, he is a refugee, and we should be bringing him, pulling out all stops to bring him home. And and the great thing was is that they all operate around this idea of the presumption of innocence, something that you know some people in the world of today should really take heed of. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. But you've got other problems that have happened in the round ball game, and I think it's probably demonstrated best in terms of how they've handled it well is how they've set up the confederations across the Middle East. Because you've got the problem of Israel, and we're not going to talk about the geopolitics of it because that's been done to death, and nobody wants to listen to that as a sporting podcast. But the fact that Israel sits in the European qualification pool as opposed to the rest of the Middle Eastern nations. Every nation that surrounds Israel sits either in the African pool, in Egypt, or in the Asian pools. But Israel sits inside the European qualification. And that's probably not a bad way to try and take the bite out of that geopolitical situation, although I have no idea what's going to happen if Israel ever makes a World Cup and happens to be drawn in the same pool as one of those nations that they have political dramas with. Well, this, of course, brings back um, very horrific memories of what happened at the 1974 Olympic Games in Munich. I think it was 72. Uh, 72, my apologies, yes. But um, it's very horrific um, scenes that occurred there. And I think uh, FIFA, to their credits, when it came to assigning where Israel would where Israel would actually play, agreed that they should be playing in Europe. And I think that's, as you said, that certainly did kill off any, for now anyway, any sort of... Um, stress about what would happen if Israel played against any other teams, any other teams in the Middle East. Having said that, 
It could have been even worse if you get to the situation of the Asian Champions League because Tel Aviv, one of the teams in Israel, is actually quite competitive and they've made the Champions League a Cup on quite a few occasions. Could you imagine what it would be like coming through the Western division of the Asian Champions League having to play some of the games again? Uh, going into Iran or or places like that, it'd just be Correct. a nightmare. But some something that I'm not so sold on in terms of how they've solved the political situations that they have to deal with with FIFA is, of course, the old favourite, the old chestnut that those of us that like to deride the game come back to is the is the way politics is done in those nations. And we saw it because the Qataris, they managed to somehow weasel and wind and squirrel their way into hosting the next World Cup in 2022 and we all know how that happened because there are a few palms that needed to be washed clean at the end of it because of all the grease that was on there and how exactly does FIFA clean that up because there are certain parts of the world where doing business is not doing business. Two words Keith, they don't and the reason why they don't is because FIFA have allowed themselves to be corrupted in this manner for years. The issue you've got, the issue you've got at this stage, is that there was a report, the Garcia report, that would have blown the situation wide open into how corrupt the dealings of FIFA had been, especially with regards to the Qatari World Cup bidding. However, in one of his last acts. Sepp Blatter decided that he would suppress the Garcia report. This was going to blow FIFA wide open, expose it for what it had been for the last few years, and um, Blatter ensured that the, that the Garcia report would be locked up for time immemorial. Is, is there any chance that that can be revisited, or is that report basically shredded now? I dare say it is very close to shredded, if not already so. So how do they they go about this? Because the new FIFA boss was elected on a platform of anti-corruption. If he's going to clean the place up, how can he start unless he knows exactly where the bodies are buried? Well, uh, the the, the gentleman's name, I believe it's Infantile. Infantino, yeah, Gianni Infantino. The problem you've got with him is that while he came up as an anti-corruption candidate, the problem that he's going to... problem that he's going to have is that a lot of people that supported him were part of that old guard. Now, some of them are gone. Now, one of the most corrupt members of FIFA at that time was uh, was a member of the United States Confederation. He's long gone. I think it was Jack Jack Wagner, and he's he's now long gone. But some of the members of those confederate confederations are still hanging around on a bad smell and and, and supporting Infantino. Um, to placate those issues, Infantino agreed to expand the World Cup to 48 teams, have more teams competing at the World Cup in return for allowing some freedom to be able to press his anti-corruption agenda. Mm. So there is a, quite a bit of I'll scratch my back if I'll, I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. It's going to keep happening, especially when you consider as well that you've got the situation around Confederate um, countries like Qatar and confederations like Asia, where, and this is probably the most disgusting thing to come from it, is that the head of the Qatari Football Federation is 
the crown prince of Qatar. And he has also managed to get himself onto the AFC board and the FIFA board. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there some sort of bylaw in the FIFA regulations or a convention or I don't know whether it's written down that government cannot be interfering in the operations of a national confederation? That is correct. But the problem that you have is when you're dealing with an autocratic political system like um, Qatar, it's autocratic. Where exactly does that take us? Because we know we've basically got the same problem in North Korea because I know that Kim Jong-un always likes to brag about how he scored four goals against Brazil and beat them 5 nothing on his own and he set up the other assist and he ran rings around them and all that sort of thing. But when you get to a nation that doesn't put on that level of propaganda, how can you separate the nation from the confederation without basically telling the nation that you're going to get punted if you don't actually walk away? Once again, two words: you don't. And this this was this was highlighted completely back in the nineties with Iraq when Saddam Hussein had his own son as head of the Iraqi Football Confederation. There were unbelievable messages being passed on to those footballers at the time, and while they were rewarded handsomely when they won the Asian Cup in the two thousands, there were times when players were actually fleeing from the Iraqi national team were actually fleeing the country. As soon as, similar to what happened at the Commonwealth Games up in the Gold Coast recently, when I think there was um, 20 athletes and officials from other nations did the runner after the Commonwealth Games across Australia. Yeah, Commonwealth Games always seems to run into that sort of drama. So really, when it comes to soccer or football, there's no real chance of really removing that political situation. So is it a case that maybe you have to look at maybe stripping FIFA down, abolishing it, and looking to reconstitute something? How, or have you just got to make the best of a bad situation? You've got to make the best of a bad situation, and, and a real attempt was at, had, was actually starting to be made um, towards the end of the noughties when a new anti-corruption committee was formed. Two, they had two very capable people who were heading up that um, that committee. Two of them you would probably know quite well, actually, Keith. Mm-hmm. One of them is, is the gentleman, the gentleman we like to call uh, Mrs. Football being Les Murray, the doyen, the late doyen. And um, even you as, a, as, a, as not that much of a footballing fan knows the massive contribution that he gave to football in Australia. Oh, there's two people that you know in soccer in Australia that even if you're not a fan, one was Mr. I Told You So and the other one was Les Murray. Yeah, absolutely. The other one is uh, one that, on, on face value, you being Polish, you wouldn't have many nice things to say about him, but uh, we in the footballing world know him to be probably one of the few incorruptible members of FIFA, and that is um, Dirk Kaiser himself in Franz Beckenbauer. Incidentally, the only person who voted for Australia when they bid for the 2022 World Cup. Yeah, th- this is this is why I'm divided on him, and I don't know where where I'll let the chips fall when discussing him, but that that pr- that. Pr- presents an interesting point of difference because you've got the anti-corruption forces who, without trying to get too geopolitical, suddenly seem to represent more of the Western Hemisphere, sans for Jack Wagner, who was just an absolute disaster as the US delegate. But is that now maybe going to 
be brought into a bit sharper focus if it does turn out that it's the Western Hemisphere versus the Eastern Hemisphere, for lack of a better term. Although you'll still have the honest brokers in Japan and South Korea and nations like that. But other nations that are prepared to get a little bit more underhanded, is that going to cause a bit of a a problem going forward? I don't don't think so necessarily. And the reason why for that is because the money in football is still held in Europe. Unlike, say, somewhere like cricket, where all the money is now in India, the, the money in football is spread around Europe and it comes in the form of the UEFA Champions League. Yes, the, the ratings now are through the roof across all of Asia hmm. and China is now spending big money to bring players over there. But all the transactions, all the money, it needs to start somewhere and that source is starting from Europe. The jersey sales are through the roof, especially when you go through the Middle East, go through India, go through China and whatnot. But if you don't have Europe, you don't have a market. And Europe knows how to ensure that people don't forget that. That's very true. And the, the fact that Europe still has such a market and will still draw those players from the Middle East and from Asia, not not all of the Middle Eastern and Asian confederations are shonky and underhanded, obviously, and there are just as many in Europe. But the way things are working out now, it looks more like there is a clear geopolitical distinction where those confederations who are prepared to do backroom deals are located. Does that effort to bring players both ways rather than just bring the eastern players into the west, is that starting to break that down or do you think that that extra money will actually start filtering through to some of those western nations where we saw a situation a while ago where South Koreans would actually turn out for North Korea in the name of quote-unquote national unity? It can happen. The The classic example has been we've been seeing has been the improving standard of the Chinese League. So they, they have splashed a lot of money out to bring some major players over to play in China and you only need to look at the the situation with Guangzhou Evergrande for example when they had uh, Marcello Lippi the successful Italian Juventus manager was coaching them and then after that they had Fabio Cannavaro coaching them as well the former Italian captain Uh, you've also got the likes of Hulk Oscar playing over there. Carlos Tevez has played over in uh, in China. You also see the likes of William Gallas, who's played in Japan as well, and they get a ma- they get a massive reception over there. And it just it, it continues to improve the standard, much like with what's been happening in the A League. So now you start to see people spending money in their own leagues rather than just spending it on the European leagues, and all that does is strengthen their own league. That can bring in the foreign element, and then all of a sudden you're not only exposed to a different way of playing, but you're exposed to a different way of thinking and maybe that diversifies the way that the national confederations think and you might get some progress there. But another sport that made the news uh, recently and it was earlier this year was the Paralympics. The International Paralympic Committee actually stripped Malaysia of the right to host the 2019 World Para Swimming Championships and we go back to the Israeli situation because Malaysia banned Israeli athletes from participating. And the championships were meant to be a qualifier for the 2020 Tokyo Paralympics. And they'd been scheduled between July 29 and August the 4th. And now they're looking for a new venue, the IPC, because they decided to strip Malaysia of those hosting rights. Is that something you can ever see FIFA going down the path of, or to a lesser extent UEFA, given that we know the Russians are not exactly on the level 100% of the time? 
Let's be let's be fair to the Russians. Yes, there, there have been some very questionable ethics displayed by the Russians at times, but let's never forget that the Russians do actually have a, a bit of football pedigree about themselves. They have won the European Championship before. They've got a couple of very strong clubs that uh, play. They've played in the Champions League. The two clubs that come to mind are Zenit St. Petersburg and Lokomotiv Moscow. Yes, you can probably ask some questions about Russia, but at the same time, I wasn't overly worried about Russia because at least they get and understand and regularly participate within the footballing world. Would FIFA or UEFA strip an event? Well, honestly, if ever they were going to strip an event, it would have been the World Cup from Qatar, especially when you consider three major things that are occurring at the moment. First off, the construction of the stadiums itself has seen a ridiculous number of workers killed in the process of building these new stadiums. Number two, they promised that these stadiums would be green stadiums in the middle of the desert, fully enclosed, fully air-conditioned, and at the end of the World Cup, they would donate these stadiums to an African nation. How are they going to get them there? You tell me. Number three... And I think probably the worst the worst part that they've got is that Qatar have reminded everyone that will be attending the World Cup that they will be they are expected to comply with every law that occurs within um, within Qatar. There will be no exemptions. So can you imagine what it would be like being a Brazilian or an Argentinian turning up in very hot conditions to a football to a football match? They're going to dress as they normally do. But I'm more no. interested in what happens with the Australian supporters who turn up wanting to get on the Terps with a six pack, and they they're basically carted away in in the police vans. So supposedly Qatar will be setting up designated drinking zones to accommodate for the. World Cup, but I wonder how what kind of enforcement is going to happen within that or indeed outside it. Don't forget as well, because of the climate, Qatar has actually forced the World Cup to be held in January, not the traditional June-July. We're interrupting Splinters, the Bench Podcast, to bring you even more podcast on this Tuesday evening because you might notice that we're dropping a few sound effects in here and there, and that's because we've got a special guest producer this week who I'm going to plug in the second half of the podcast as well. But joining us is our special guest producer, our work experience student here at Triple H 100.1 FM, Georgia Elsley. Georgia, welcome to Splinters. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Georgia, what inspired you to get involved in the radio and the podcasting business? Because it's, it's not something that most kids put up on their work experience recommendations. No, that's true. I've just always really had a love for talking and listening to other people talk and an interest in maybe one day getting into this kind of industry and business. So yeah, I thought better get some experience while I've got the opportunity to. A teenage girl who loves talking. I never thought I'd see the day. (laughs) Georgia, do you have much of an interest in the sporting sector or is the sport industry a bit new to you here at Triple H? Um, It's a bit new, but you're definitely teaching me some things and I'm definitely learning more as I edit some of the podcasts. Hear that, Musi? I am a great teacher you have to listen to me from now on you're going to show some discipline when you get back from England you're going to listen to the orders that the Lord Mayor gives and you're going to treat me with some respect because that's what Georgia suggests you do because I know what I'm talking about Georgia you're a student at Abbotsley School here in the north of Sydney what do you enjoy most at school are you a drama person music person are you a more a science person what what takes Um, your interest I definitely love doing drama drama is always lots of fun and you get to do a whole range of different things and I also love learning about history and a bit 
of business studies. What sort of history are you into? Modern. I like learning about the wars, why they happened and why we can make sure it doesn't happen again. You should be on the midweek wash-up with Stephen <laughs> at 4 o'clock on a Wednesday or even Street Beat with Neil and Justine at 4 o'clock on a Friday on Triple H 100.1 FM. Georgia, it's great to have you on board. Thank you. We'd love to keep chatting, but we've got a bit of work to do, so we better get back to the podcast. We better. Soccer's got enough problems, swimming's got political problems, and cricket's got political problems, but that's enough for those sports because coming up next, we have the three sports that just keep on giving the three oval ball sports, league, union, and AFL, coming up next right here on Splinters. It's time to hit the ice. This weekend, you're all about caring Sydney Bears return to the Macquarie Ice Rink for a double header of ice hockey action with the Sydney Ice Dogs visiting on Saturday the 1st of June for Men's Health Night and the Newcastle North Stars coming to town on Sunday the 2nd of June in the Australian Ice Hockey League. Gates open at 4.30 with puck drop at 5pm. Tickets start at just $25 for adults and $12 for kids with children under 5 free. Save time and book online at bearsden.com.au and don't forget to tune in to the bench on Friday at 6pm to get your special bench promo code to get 10% off the price of your tickets. Sydney Bears, hear us roar. Sponsors of Triple H. Welcome back to Splinters on Triple H 100.1 FM on this Tuesday night or on triplehfm.com.au if you're not within the horns of Karingai or on podcasts.com or TuneIn or Spotify or iTunes, wherever you're listening right across the world. Could be good morning, could be good evening. It could be a frigid Friday in Forbes or a sunny Sunday in Saskatoon. We're everywhere on Splinters. And this Splinters political edition actually has a very special guest producer, Georgia Ellsley, one of our work experienced guests at Triple H has put a hand up and she's producing this episode and thank you for stepping in Georgia and uh, hopefully this won't be the last time we get you helping out on Splinters and Anthony we spoke just before the interval about the three codes that just keep on giving as far as political disasters go we're going to start things off with my game the greatest game rugby league bouncing the gallon it's gone to Jennings he cuts back If you're going to start talking politics, I think we have to start where most of the political debate has been with the rugby league, and that's the Indigenous All-Stars game. And the way that they actually modified it this year to make it an Indigenous All-Stars versus a Maori All-Stars, which means if you're not Indigenous or Maori descent, you're basically ruled out of the game. How is that fair in terms of racial diversity and racial equality? I just think I think it's a complete and utter misstep to, to do a match like that. I, I thought it didn't mind the, the All-Stars game initially in, uh, in its initial phase. It was a it was a concept brought up by Preston Campbell to sort of celebrate, uh, one of the ways to celebrate the, the strength of Indigenous players within the realms of rugby league. And, you know, for most parts, I didn't mind it. And there was a, certainly a bit of spirit about it and a bit of fun about it. And that's the way it needed to be treated. It's a bit of a novelty. It's a nice, feel-good way just to start the season. But I think they just tried to be too clever for their own good by trying to do a Maori all-star team. I still have my reservations about dividing an Indigenous team versus a non-Indigenous team. and I understand the concept of trying to promote better outcomes for Indigenous people, but I would have thought the better way to do it might have just been to take a famous Indigenous figure from history and a famous white or European or non-Indigenous figure from Australian history. Let's just say Cook versus Benelong or Cook versus Pamela Y 
or something like that. Maybe mix the teams up. Maybe, okay, you're going to have Team Benelong and you're going to have all Indigenous backs with an all-white forward pack versus Cook, which is going to be the other way around or something like that. So I can see the benefit of that there. But one of the other things that the NRL has really screwed up lately, and we're going to talk about this when we get to the next sport in more detail, and I know it's been done to death, but we have to touch on it, is the way in which Peter Beattie very quickly went out and said after Israel Folau made his comments on social media that he does not meet the test of inclusiveness for the National Rugby League and therefore Israel Folau would not be welcomed back into Rugby League. But my best mate, Greg Inglis, who was done for drink driving, was done for domestic violence, was done or was caught basically branding the entire state of New South Wales as a bunch of racists who lied to the Brisbane Broncos who were trying to sign him up as a player. So he's lied to a prospective employer. He's held up as the values of inclusiveness. And they're talking about letting Tim Simona back in, who bet against his own teammates, and from all reports forced his then girlfriend to have an abortion because it was going to impact on his social life. How are these guys meeting the test of inclusiveness when Israel Folau can't quote Bible passages? Well, hang on a second. This is coming from the same gentleman who didn't even know who Benji Marshall is. Benji Barber, you mean? Benji Barber? Oh, yeah, that's right. He, what a wonderful player he is. Yeah, Benji so, Barber. Is he, is he the one playing for West Tigers, or is he the one that got done at the casino in Townsville? Oh, I don't know. Benji Barber's apparently playing soccer in Mackay and rugby league for West Tigers or something along those lines. So, the, 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 uh, the, issue, the, issue, the issue you have with, with something like this is that is the amount of virtue signaling that's, that's going on. And rugby league's taken one look at how much a company like Qantas is holding rugby to ransom at the moment. Um, they think it's the way that they're going to, it's the only way they're going to be able to keep the feel good stories with the sponsors, keep the sponsorship money is by uh, a allowing this virtue signaling to, to continue on. And it's just, it's completely unnecessary. Of, of the three codes, you know, Rugby League has actually shown that when they get it right, they can actually do causes brilliantly. And, and I want to bring up one in particular, which you and I know of very well. And that's the moment when Ian Roberts um, came out as as being a homosexual. Yes. Rugby League, call space, mate, Rugby League were outstanding yep. in terms of their support for Ian Rob. And when I speak to a couple of my gay friends, they said that that was the moment that they realised they could still support Rugby League and be gay. Absolutely. Because they gave Ian Roberts. Because the way Rugby League handled it wasn't to parade Ian Roberts around, pardon the pun in terms of parade, but they didn't hold Ian Roberts up as this paragon of virtue and say, look at us, we're so great. We've got the first gay footballer come and love us. It was more a case of, yeah, Ian Roberts is gay. That just shows that we allow all comers and we're not going to make a big deal over it. He is gay. Yeah, okay. That's fine, and we're going to get on with the game. And I have to say that something that he has admitted himself was the way in which the footy show dealt with it at the time as well, because that episode of the footy show, he didn't actually come out and say it, but he left people in no doubt as to where he stood. And then all of a sudden, within 10 minutes, Ricky Stewart was throwing barbs at him. He was throwing them back, and Paul Wharton had turned it into a whole let's find a bloke for Robbo segment. the, The way that it just evolved from this dramatic moment to taking the piss to all of a sudden it's just another guy and we're just going to try and set him up just like we tried to find a girl for steve let's find a bloke for robbo all of a sudden all those barriers just came crashing down yeah absolutely and yeah you know, and sterlo should be 
commended for the way that they handled the entire situation. So, uh, you know, unfortunately now what you've got is this idea that we have to virtue signal the, the entire sport just to make everyone feel good. At the end of the day, you've got a product. The product is the game of rugby league. It doesn't, yes, it matters what goes on off the field, but culture comes from getting on with the job that you have and doing it to the best of the ability and doing it to a state that supports the game as a whole. And some of the actions that go about to, for causes, highly commendable. But then the moments where they go too far. Rugby league, for mine, has been, hasn't been too bad. There's been a couple of missteps, but by and large, they've actually done a reasonable job, unlike the next two sports we're going to start talking yeah. about. Oh, I think rugby league might have just started to overstep the mark during the same-sex marriage debate. It wasn't the fact that they came out and said that the NRL was in favour of the reform, which I still opposed the fact that the NRL vote was campaigning in favour of it because I don't think a sport should be campaigning for any political cause whatsoever and just in the interest of full declaration I didn't vote in that plebiscite because I've got my own views on marriage being regulated by the government and I'm not going to get into that right now but I think they overstepped the mark there but the fact that they invited Macklemore in at a very politically charged time knowing what song he was going to sing I think they overstepped the line there as one of, as an example of one of those missteps all they had to do was just throw out some rain during the NRL grand final and say, look, aren't these pretty? And use the subliminal messaging. Yeah, we're on board with it, but we're not going to campaign on it. But instead, they came out and really made it a campaign slogan almost. Yeah, and honestly, people, a lot of people um, don't actually know this, but the ratings actually took quite a dip during that um, Macklemore performance. Yeah. And it only picked up when the game actually started. Yeah, and I know that 2GB decided to censor those particular lyrics during the song. I don't know what purpose that served but you're right those ratings did dip and it's an example of what happens when you try and implement ideas from the top down rather than just let them gather their own momentum from the bottom and then go up through the ranks and speaking of trying to implement something from the top down yes we are going to talk about it got it away to Foley who flings one over to It is the disaster that Rugby Australia has found itself in. With the double standard, not necessarily of saying, OK, we don't like what you said and we're going to sack you for it, but demonstrating a political double standard because people have so quickly forgotten on the back of Israel Folau now having his contract terminated for voicing his thoughts and therefore that's a political no-no because Rugby Australia doesn't get involved in politics and, and discrimination of that sort. But they were perfectly OK with David. Pocock committing acts of trespass and vandalism a few years ago when he campaigned against the use of coal. So let's let's make sure that we are completely clear about the situation with this as a whole. The official reason, of course, that Israel Folau has uh, been sacked is because he violated a term of a contract that he signed, allegedly, stating that he would not post those kinds of religious um, opinions on his personal social media again. So they are claiming it is a breach of contract. People mm-hmm. saying it's a it is a, it is a violation of the freedom of speech. Uh, I have to, I will say this, they are conveniently ignoring the fact that if it is in fact true that Falau violated his contract, well then he's violated his contract and you can't yes. really argue with that. Mm-hmm. Where the issue comes in with freedom of speech is whether it's appropriate to regulate 
regulate something like that in the first place. Yeah. So that's the danger that you actually run with trying to engage in censoring people's opinions and uh, and faiths. David Pocock, for lack of a better term, David Pocock committed a crime. He engaged in criminal trespass. Okay, it's at the lower end of the scale, but he, he still has a conviction against his name for it. I don't think they actually recorded the conviction. I think they they decided not to record the conviction, but still found against him. Oh, so you got a Section 10. I think it's a Section 10 that he got, but the, the, the principle remains that he still went to court and he was still found guilty of what happened, uh, yeah. to the best of my knowledge. But Israel Folau, he hasn't been charged by police for anything. No, he, has, he absolutely has not. And what this is, is this, just, this is just showing, this is a classic example of how far down Rugby Australia has got. Now, I'm not his biggest fan by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, him and I have probably very different political views. But Alan Jones on 2GB has been absolutely on the ball with regards to how far gone Rugby Australia has become. They've completely lost the plot on what they are there to do. They were more focused on punishing Israel Folau for his behaviour rather than dealing with the real elephant in the room, and that is the inconsistent performance of not only Australia's super rugby teams, but also the Wallabies themselves, who, let's face it, when they go to the World Cup later on this year, they are onto a hiding to nothing. The, the only way they do anything at the World Cup is if they can top the group. Otherwise, they're going to get knocked out very early. But is that really a, a, an excuse they can fall back on and say, oh, yeah, we just copped a bad group draw? Well, why are you all of a sudden making excuses for a bad group draw? Why aren't you still up there with the best in the world like you used to be? And I'm going to tell you the reason. I can tell you the reason why for it is because Rugby Australia have lost all idea about what made the what made the game so great around the turn of the millennium. Australian rugby was in an unbelievable state. People were leaving rugby league to go to rugby union. Not only because they had the money there, because they had a team that was actually performing and all of a sudden, you know, the, the provincial rugby competitions was actually doing brilliantly. Yeah. The fact that the biggest action that happened in rugby last week was the Mounties Cup between Manly and Warringah really Sit down, Shane Evans. Sit down, Shane. Sit down. down. Speaks volumes as to how far rugby has gone down the gurgler in terms of their focus. They're more interested in virtue signaling than they are of trying to rebuild a sport which, for lack of a better term, is on its knees. You're absolutely right. And the the problem that Rugby Union is facing at the moment in terms of are they a political campaigning front or are they a sport, you could almost say that it comes back to their major sponsor. Now, whether Alan Joyce is being required to do this by his board or not, the fact of the matter is that Alan Joyce has been at the forefront of the same-sex marriage debate. He's been very forceful in putting forward political messaging when Qantas is supposed to be an airline first and foremost. And I have to say from personal experience, it's not the best airline I've ever travelled on because for some reason they like to leave the window seat a good half metre away from the actual window so you can't actually rest up against the uh, rest up against the fuselage to get any sleep on the way home. And thanks, Alan, that was the worst 13-hour flight I've ever had back from Los Angeles. But putting that aside, where, where do you draw the line with these sponsors and with these bodies who think they have a role to play in political campaigning, particularly rugby? Because in league, league has a similar problem, but they're not really confronting it because they're not getting into that fight. But Union has a massive problem with two very different demographics. You have the North Shore demographic, which is in 
increasingly the old money, almost doctor's wife set, which is getting very progressive, starting to lean to the left. And then you've got these hardcore Christian Pacific Islanders who lean well and truly to the right. How are you going to keep that mix together? Because I can see very clearly, and I've said this before, all the Pacific Islanders bailing on the Wallabies six weeks before the World Cup in an act of solidarity with Israel Folau as a middle finger to Rugby Australia. I can tell you now that what is going to happen is that Rugby Australia is going to be on the verge of collapse from this. And the reason why is because one side of the debate has the money, the other side of the debate has the player pool, the talent pool that is required to make it a successful product. The sponsors that are getting involved know that they can put rugby in a position where they want to further their own needs because rugby is struggling for cash. It doesn't have the money that is coming in from, say, a rugby league who have just sold a $1 billion um, TV rights deal that they'd be able to fund the sport for the next God knows how many years. Rugby doesn't have that anymore. Because nobody and wants to watch it. No one wants to watch it. And Fox Sports is starting to lose interest in, in, in Super Rugby, let's face it. So now you're in a situation where you're cornered on one side because someone, one group has got all the money, but they want to have their own social agendas pushing through. On the other side, you've got a different social agenda that's been pushing in the other direction. They don't have money, but they've got the players. And yep. the players are very good players. So Absolutely right. How are you going to, how you bring the two parties together is the challenge that Raylene Castle has to solve. And quite frankly, I don't think she is going to be up for the challenge, not because of who she is, but because she has already made her bed in this situation by siding with the wishes of Alan Joyce and taking sides. She needed to come this as a neutral as, as Switzerland to say, guys, let's come together, let's work out a solution to this. No, she didn't. She caved into the money. She's now going to lose the lose the talent pool. And for what? To retain the sponsorship of Qantas? Well, given how well she did running the Canterbury-Bankstown Bulldogs into the ground, I'm surprised that Rugby Australia actually gave her the gig. She did an all right job with netball before she got to the Bulldogs, but once she got to the Bulldogs, everything just fell apart. So maybe Rugby Australia, the lesson from this is maybe do your research on your next CEO appointment. But now we reach the ultimate social justice sport because I like to refer to it on the midweek wash-up, now the Wednesday drive, as the Social Justice Football League and so does Stephen because this is the game where you get a point for missing. Because the Eagle has landed for the Premiers in 2018. You get a consolation point because you got close and you didn't get close enough, so we'll give you a point for participating. It's the Oprah Winfrey sport. You get a point, you get a point, everybody gets a point. We're talking about the AFL, and this is and this is the sport that actually inspired this week's podcast because David Penbethy, who is a former Sunday Telegraph editor, now writes for one of the sections on the news website called uh, Rendezvous, and he lives in Adelaide now, but... One of Larry the things, Kate Ellis, isn't he, as well? Yes, the Kate Ellis, the former Labor member for Adelaide, who I think retired at the election, just gone. He wrote an interesting piece on the way the AFL, or the SJFL, if you like, is trying to implement all this social engineering because he talked about the great Adam Goods booing controversy, and he nailed it because most people booed Adam Goods not because he was Indigenous, but because he complained about it was unfair that he was booed all the time and it was having a negative impact on him. So what do you do to 
try and win? Of course you're going to try and put a guy off as best you can. And he just told everybody how to put him off. And all they had to do was boo him. And that's exactly what happened. And then you had AFL House lining itself up in the colours of a rainbow every night during the same-sex marriage plebiscite, which was far, far bigger than any effort the NRL made. And then it got even worse because this year we have now umpires who, if you've got umpires being booed, then the AFL are saying, no, you can't do that anymore because the umpires are part of our employee network and you can't be harassing employees in the workplace. So the AFL thinks that it can stop the booing of match officials in one fell swoop. And this is this is the bit I like because we've seen three, and he outlines these three examples of what happens when you go after umpires in the last few weeks. So Sydney co-captain Dane Rampay was fined 10 grand after he told the field umpire that he sounded quote like a little girl end quote now you can talk about a 10 grand fine but that that really does demonstrate how pathetic the AFL is because Carlton player Dale Thomas was fined $2,500 less so seven and a half grand he got because he called a boundary umpire a cheat now I don't know about you Bull but when I was refereeing rugby league if you went up and told a told a referee he was blind or he was a moron or he was a muppet or he sounded like a girl you'd probably get a stern talk talking to and maybe tending the bin. But if you told an umpire that he was a cheat or a referee he was a cheat, you get four weeks after being sent off and confronting the judiciary. So where, where does the AFL stop in this case of social engineering? Where, where do they stop and draw the line in trying to redefine what it is to be an Australian down there in the Democratic People's Republic of Victoria? Well, the last comment you made there summed up perfectly why the um, why they won't change is because they are in the People's Social Democratic of Victoria. The, the AFL have moved so far to the left to appease the audience that they have down in Melbourne, that they, they don't care who they get offside as long as they get the, the the markets that they're after down there. Now, you're absolutely right in terms of the situation with the two players and the comparison of the suspensions. If this was me refereeing football, you call me a moron, you, you call me an idiot, you, you would have automatically, you would have received the yellow card, you would have got a very stern talking to, probably in front of your own club's box, so everyone could hear. If you call me a cheat, see you, you, you see you later, go have an early shower. Um, and I dare say, yeah, I agree. I reckon they would have got, you know, four to six weeks as a, as a, as a first offence. You know, you don't, you don't do that. But AFL, th- there's a couple of things I don't get with the AFL. First off, they are so limp-wristed when it comes to actually suspending players for foul behaviour. Yeah. Like, Barry Hall goes and punches someone on the field. King virtually King hits them. He doesn't even get sent off. Well, there's, there's, the no, there's no send-off rule in AFL, so you can't no. really discipline them that way. But in league, in union, in soccer, you can send a player off. Even in hockey, you can you can give them a game misconduct. It'll only be a five-minute power play, an extended five-minute power play, but the player will be kicked out of the game, and that's available to referees and officials in all the major American sports. So what's so bad about the AFL being prepared to kick a guy out of the game? I that's what I don't get. And this is, the, this is the first problem that AFL has got at the moment, is their inability to discipline players on the field for misdemeanor demeanors like that. What's the worst that's going to happen to you on the field? You go and, and clonk someone in the back of the head, what's the worst that's going to do? Oh, you're going to go on report and you'll get a, you know, you'll 
get a two-match suspension. What? Yeah. You just knocked the bloke out. He's on the ground. He's probably convulsing. And all and, you're going to do is put him in the pool. And this this is where the AFL get it completely ass up because then they turn around and say, oh, it's grand final day, so any infringements committed today, you'll get double the punishment at the tribunal. Who gives a stuff? I'm going to go out and knock out the other team's star player, take him out of the game. We're going to win the grand final. I don't care if I get 18 weeks as opposed to the normal nine weeks. I just want a flag and flags fly forever. So up yours, AFL. Exactly the point. And it's this whole misguided idea around what should be for the good of the game uh, is where AFL really threatened to shoot themselves in the foot big time. Andrew, Demet- Andrew Demetrio has has been was the person who really started this right from the start where he tried to and let's face it, let's face it, the initial incident that sparked the whole Adam Good situation, being called a a monkey by a thirteen year old girl, probably slightly overblown in terms of the situation. But you know what? If I was an Adam Good shoot and someone was calling me a monkey, yeah, I'd probably say, I'd probably turn around and say, you know what, that's a racist comment and I'll call him out for it, but But you let it go after five weeks, sure. You let let it go after, A, you let it go after five weeks and B, you don't have the AFL trying to milk it for all it's worth Yeah, and that's what Andrew Dimitriou did. He tried to milk it by showing that AFL cares, AFL was all about protecting the indigenous, protecting indigenous Australians. No, no. All you needed to do was show we will not tolerate this behaviour, ban the girl for a couple of weeks, sure, fine, but don't go on about it afterwards. And the job's the, the, done. Yeah, the, the other thing that I find really in, incredibly stupid from the AFL is the Carlton Cheer Squad have been sent a please explain letter after they came up with the incredibly vicious, brutal, offensive and vile chant against an umpire a couple of weekends ago of the umpire's a wanker. Now, I reckon Carlton Cheer Squad should be fined $50,000 for lack of creativity because surely you can come up something better than that because I've heard the St. George Illawarra Cheer Squad come up with a chant or come up with a song that I think your Manly fans have ripped off a bit. Um, Who's your father? Who's your father referee? At least that one's a little bit more creative than umpires or wanker. That's been done before, but the AFL has just completely lost the plot. Well, I have to admit that we once had a chant saying that um, Jared Maxwell, your mum is a horse. So, um, and yes, I did say horse, I should say. Yeah, yep. Um, and anyone who knows, anyone who knows Jared Maxwell and seen his face, you'd probably, Keith, you'd probably agree with that, wouldn't you? The only, the only thing that is longer than Jared Maxwell's face is the running distance in the Melbourne Cup, which is, <laughs> which is quite an appropriate comparison given you're comparing him to a horse. Yes, exactly. Uh, and then, and, he, and his nickname is Horse. Exactly. When, when you actually listen to the call, they actually make a mockery of it because you used to, you used to refer video referee calls to Bang Bang which was Steve Chitty's nickname Chitty Chitty Bang 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 that's actually quite creative until somebody misheard it and I'm not going to tell you what they misheard but they they actually refer the call up to Jared Maxwell not by saying Jared but they say horse it's four tackles I've got a trial whatever blah 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 yeah so at least the rugby league has a sense of humour yeah exactly I mean the other example we had with that was a chant that my my mates and I did to Corey Parker claiming that he uses just for men and Corey Parker heard that he turned around and started laughing he probably does use Just For Men now because I know that plenty of other people have used Just For Men to try and cover up the worst of the going grey but unfortunately when you go grey that means it's the end of your career and that we've also reached the end of this podcast what marks do I get for that segue? Do I get a 7 out of 10, an 8 out of 10? 
that's outstanding. It's one of your best. It's not necessarily the end of the podcast for you because you're going to be back next week with Dom Rizzuto talking about all the European football competitions now that they've wrapped up. But um, we're going to go further than that because I'm going to be back, then back again with more football, in which is going to include, I think we're okay with previewing this, the Women's World Cup. Yes, we will we're going to have a very special guest joining us for that. Ooh, that's one to stay tuned for. That could get interesting. Big guest coming up for the Women's World Cup preview. I like the sound of that. Anthony the Raging Bull Caruso, been great having you on Splinters so quickly after your last appearance on the bench, and you'll be back next week on Splinters for certain with the Euro Wrap. Absolutely, and it's a pleasure to be back here on Splinters. Thank you for your company tonight on Splinters on Triple H 100.1 FM, triplehfm.com.au, and wherever you can get good podcasts and even a few bad ones as well. I'm the Lord Mayor Keith Topolsky. Been great having your company, but until next week, in fact, until Friday night when you'll catch us on the bench, it's bye-bye. Bye.